politics without the soap opera with unfiltered constitutional conservative truth. The Conservative Review with Daniel Horowitz. And welcome back, fellow American patriots and Minutemen standing at the ready to fight anew for everything that matters in the way it matters at the time it matters. It's a tall order, but if that's what you want, this is your one-stop shop, only shop of truly independent conservative talk. Daniel Horowitz back here today for Wednesday, the 13th of September. And folks, when you're entreated to this fake WWE-style fight between the GOP and Dems, in light of the FDA approving another fake booster, it reminds me of when the FDA approves boosters based on a fake trial, what they do is, and they they actually did it in this case, they compare the outcomes of this booster versus the previous booster, all the while not offering the ultimate placebo control group, which would be a group that didn't get any of your serum. <laughs> and and obviously, so what, what that does is it makes it that you have no baseline. And indulge me for a second here. I don't mean to get too into the vaccines like we did yesterday, but I want to use it for a metaphor. You see, the reason why you want to do that is because then you have no real control group. People don't see what the world would have looked like. How many people would get autoimmune? How many people would get allergies? How many people would have cancers? All this stuff. So that's why, and it turns out they've been doing this for years in most clinical trials, they've never had a long-term, purely clean placebo-controlled group. And I think as a metaphor, that's what the two parties are. As we look at this budget fight, as we face 10 or so existential crises from inflation to the invasion at the border, the inner city crime, the biomedical security state, the surveillance state, the DOJ targeting, the green energy the cultural stuff, transing our kids, flushing our money in Ukraine, all this stuff. And you look at the two parties, and it's like, well, maybe I could find a difference between the two arms of this experimental trial. But you don't see a bold contrast. I want to do what I haven't typically done, and it's going to chew up some of our precious time, which I don't like to do, but it's worthwhile. I want to play two long clips that set the table for where we are on the issues, where we are on the budget fight, and the so-called specter of a government shutdown. And in it, you will have the contrast of what we what we have as a contrast to the Dems, which is not a contrast. It's a fake control group, a controlled opposition, but not a control group against what they're doing, versus one of the few brave voices that is so articulate, so passionate, so heartfelt. And it will make you wonder, imagine if we had an entire party, and particularly a party leadership, that spoke like that, focused the way he does, where we would be as a people. Especially over time in the long term. So I want to start off with Senator Langford from Oklahoma. And by the way, he was regarded as one of the better Republicans, if you ever divided the GOP into, you know, it's about 50 senators, 25-25, he would be in the better 25. And yet he's horrible on most issues. And look, you know, I'm old enough to remember when I tried to avoid getting him elected. I wanted Jim Bridenstine to get that seat uh, last decade. But, oh, he was this great evangelical and everything. He'll just emote about babies 
kind of this pro-life statism, so to speak, where you're just good on one issue in a vacuum and then screw us on everything else so you can get elected and reelected. But this is what we have from, in, in some me- measures, our most conservative state. Take a listen to what Langford said about the budget fight and a potential government shutdown. Senator James Langford from Oklahoma here, uh, talking again about government shutdowns. It seems like we talk about this every year or a couple of times a year lately. We can say what the big issues are here. We have $32 trillion in debt. We should have a grown up, hard, difficult conversation about what are we doing on our spending? How do we get this under control? That's a reasonable thing to have happen. When we get to a government shutdown though, it seems like we always seem to be talking about putting federal workers out where they're living literally paycheck to paycheck like most Americans are. They're not getting paid for a season. Uh, and we've got all the chaos that happens around the country with closures and uh, excess, everything else like that. That doesn't really solve the problem. So several years ago, I actually sat down with some senators from the other side of the aisle and said, we got to figure out how to be able to solve this in a nonpartisan way where we can have the argument, but we also don't have a government shutdown. So we came up with a pretty simple proposal that continues to gain steam. And that is how do we prevent government shutdowns by having the most basic thing, If you didn't finish your homework at school, you stayed after class. That's pretty typical on this. We're trying to create that for members of Congress as well, that if we get to the end of the fiscal year, the appropriations work is not done. We have to stay in place seven days a week. We're in session. We can only work on the appropriations bills during that time period where we're staying after. And we're locked in at that point. But the American people and federal workers can continue on. The budget still continues to run on last year's budget. But Congress still stays in session seven days a week and works on appropriations until we get that work done. The pressure then is on members of Congress to get their work done, to have the arguments in the debate that we need to have on debt and deficit. But American workers and the federal workers in particular are not harmed in this process as well. Okay, so folks, you heard that. Oh, man, yeah, it's, it's, it's terrible, the inflation, the policies, the border. But you know what? You know, there's a time and a place to have that discussion. We can't risk a government shutdown. This statement was unbelievable in many, many respects. But it embodies 90% of elected Republicans, certainly in the Senate. But really, this is where Kevin McCarthy is at. Kevin McCarthy won't sound like that, but this is where he's at too, as we saw with the debt ceiling deal. Rather than pounding the pavement, how dare you fund a weaponized government that's doing this to us, we will stop it. Instead, it's like... Well, I agree it's a problem, and there's a place to discuss it, meaning the issue that doesn't matter in the way it doesn't matter at the time it doesn't matter when you have no leverage. But when we actually have leverage, we're not going to do it. And why aren't we going to do it? Because we're scared of the government workers. That's an unbelievable statement. Meaning, if you If you take what he's saying to its logical conclusion, I cannot imagine a government doing worse than what it's doing now. But but let's just exaggerate, and it's not such an exaggeration, um, based on this talk show host just basically getting 60 days in prison for January 6th, not for what he did, but for literally what he said on a podcast. But let's say they just in mass start rounding people up, rounding up political opponents. opponents. Again, you guys are going to laugh because they are kind of doing that, but real blatant where you can't miss it. Would we say, man, we can't bring this to a to a cathartic, you know, brinkmanship point that's going to drive a debate once and for all? 
because of the collateral damage of government workers. I mean, we're talking about long-term civilization. This is just ridiculous. It's also absurd just the fact that the people who are living paycheck to paycheck are mainly people not working for the government because of the very policies of some of those government workers. But it's not the workers in general are their fault, it's just the government policies. It's the endless spending that you don't want to shut down that's creating the inflation. Done. So, again, there are government workers. Some make a lot of money. Some don't make that much. But for what they do, they make a lot more than the private sector, especially these days. So cry me a freaking river. But, but I'll get back to that government worker point a little bit later. Next, I want to play the contrast. So, so Daniel, well, well, what should we do? Well, you listen to people like Mitch McConnell, you listen to people like Lankford, Thune, Tillis, Cornyn, all these guys. You'd be hard-pressed to find, you know, uh, any, any gulf between them and the Democrats. But it doesn't have to be this way. I've always said, where are our people pounding the lectern rather than Oh, we can't have a government shutdown. No. That you will not fund an additional day of a government that violates the social compact. Here are our budget bills. It funds the essential parts of government. It funds what it should be doing. It doesn't fund what it shouldn't be doing. We have that. Chip Roy was part of the Freedom Caucus and some outside conservative groups held a press conference uh, yesterday afternoon at the Capitol, outlining, out, basically outlining their view for what needs to be in any budget that is passed beyond midnight October 1st. And it's a long clip. It's three and a half minutes. And Chip was just on the show. But I want you to hear him in action. Not just, oh, he comes on my show. And you'll obviously hear shades of me in him. Uh, it's just, it's just terrific. Take a listen right here to Chip and listen carefully. All my colleagues here and friends who are representing uh, people from across this country who are fed up. They're fed up of a government that's out of control. And here's the thing. Our founding fathers in creating this country created separation of powers. It is incumbent upon those of us with election certificates, particularly in the House of Representatives, but also the Senate, to stand up at this end of Pennsylvania Avenue and hold the other end of Pennsylvania Avenue and the executive branch accountable. A president and an executive branch that is out of control. My question for my colleagues, particularly my Republican colleagues, is when is it enough? When is it enough to stand up and do what you campaign to do and use the power of the purse to stop this administration from trampling the American people. Spending is out of control. Federal government will spend two trillion more than it takes in this year to fund the very agencies and programs at war with the American people. Inflation is opposed to 17% across the board tax on Americans. We've added one and a half trillion dollars in debt since the so-called debt deal. We are now spending more on interest on the debt than we are in defending the United States of America. The Department of Defense is threatening our national defense by turning our military into a social engineering experiment wrapped in a uniform. 
COVID tyranny is rearing its ugly head again. It was announced today, CIA whistleblowers told the COVID Select Committee that the CIA bribed its own analysts to deny the Wuhan lab leak theory. Yesterday, the FDA approved new COVID-19 boosters for children as young as six months old, and we haven't even had clinical trials. We're funding a healthcare system broken by Washington and big insurance while average Americans foot the bill. Energy, we're destroying our ability to have reliable energy. The Inflation Reduction Act's $1.2 trillion handout to unreliable wind and solar, big corporations and rich leftists, and the Chinese Communist Party remain in effect right now. DOJ is advancing a politicized form of justice, targeting former President Trump, targeting dads like Scott Smith in Loudoun County, which thankfully Governor Yunkin just pardoned. Mark Houck, Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, for defending his son. And perhaps most of all, as a Texan, and for all of us, particularly a few New Yorkers these days, perhaps people are paying attention to a border that is so devastatingly broken that Americans are dying. How many moms do I have to sit next to in another round table in Texas who lost their son or their daughter to fentanyl? How many migrants have to die in the back of a tractor trailer in San Antonio? How many have to die in the Rio Grande? How many girls have to get sold in the sex trafficking trade before this body will wake up and stop an out of control president? Enough. Why would we fund that? That's my question for the Republican leadership. Why will you fund that? Let me be very clear. I will not continue to fund a government at war with the American people. We are here to change it. It is time to end it. And I'm proud to stand with these patriots to do that. Okay, folks, so that was, that was a long clip, but it was worth hearing it. The passion, the specificity of issues. That three and a half minutes was our national anthem. That encapsulated pretty much all the you know six, seven critical issues that we're up against. And the moment we're at, the opportunity we have... Imagine if every GOP governor, House member, senator, presidential candidate sounded like that. Imagine if every GOP leader, speaker, majority, minority leader, minority whip, committee chair, sounded like that. But how many do? Almost none. Imagine if he would be the speaker. Then again, ironically, our own people would get problems because he's not a big fan of Methodomp. But like, I don't care if you are a fan of him. But on the issues that you supposedly care about, look at that. This is what we have been missing for so many years. Imagine if day to day we had messaging and intrepid conviction behind that messaging on par with Chip Roy. Where would we be as a people? I, I would venture to say a lot of this stuff wouldn't have gotten off the ground. It would have been deterred. You tell me you go into a budget fight like that, who has the upper hand with the American people? As you're thinking about that, today's sponsor is our friends at Better Spectacles. As I give you a 2020 vision on policy, politics, culture, you got to make sure you see straight. I use Rodenstock glasses from Better, Better Spectacles simply because most progressive lenses, they have horrible periphery vision. They cut off your depth perception and your, your reading zone. And honestly, don't, they don't work. A lot of people just get rid of them. 
these are really the best, you have the best technology behind it, biometric Intel technology that creates a custom prescription for you throughout your entire lens. They could do this all online. You go to betterspectacles.com slash conservative. You could schedule a teleoptical appointment and you get 61% off your glasses. Uh, my wife and I have it. My oldest son has it. Now my second one's going to get his pair of better spectacles. There is no turning back once you get better spectacles. Hey, if you think I'm on fire, Believe it or not, you actually think better with your brain and your eyes. So it's a big part of it. Betterspectacles.com slash conservative for 61% off today. So folks, I want to dispel a bunch of just these myths or points about a government shutdown and the messaging on it. But I just first want to veer off into impeachment. So I've been noting that impeachment is a distraction. It doesn't go anywhere. And McCarthy is using it as a dead end to save his job and distract from what I would regard are not only the more important issues, but also the only issues that you have leverage to affect. Again, in plain English, we demand our budget, less spending, and defunding the bad policies from the you know border invasion to the Green New Deal to the vaccines and all this stuff. They want their budget. What happens if we can't agree? The default is they get zero funding. So we have leverage. With impeachment, let's say you could somehow get all the votes in the House, which will be hard, but let's say you get the House to vote to send it to the Senate. The Senate, and they've already said... I promise you it will be 85 to 15 against it. So the default is nothing happens to Biden. So they laugh it off. Meaning, let's say there would be some sort of constitutional provision. We don't. But let's say it would be, okay, ultimately the Senate has to convict long term. But pending the outcome of the Senate trial, once the House votes to impeach, the the president is temporarily suspended and, and the VP steps in as acting during that duration. You know, and then once the trial's over, if he's acquitted, he goes back. If he's not, he gets kicked out permanently. But that's not the system we have. So there's no leverage. That's number one. Moreover, look, sometimes we get cloistered into this Trumpathon conservative talk where everything is about Trump versus Biden, Trump versus Biden. No, no, no. He did the crime. Don't go after Trump. He's a bigger criminal. Whether you agree or disagree with this, It is true. The American people don't give a damn about the Biden crime family. They don't understand it. They don't understand the scandal. It's too nuanced. Um, Only the left has the media apparatus to make details of scandal stick on Republicans. We don't have the ability to do it the other way around, as unfair as that sounds. But when you have the damage that the Democrats caused on the issues, people, they might not understand on the level you and I do, but they get the inflation. They get the border. I believe at this point they get the vaccines. This is, you listen to Chip Roy's messaging. Would you rather fight on that or I'm impeaching Biden? What would you rather fight on? Reminder, the impeachment doesn't get you anywhere. Okay? This is the ultimate issue that we should care about. That is the contrast in front of us. So I'm kind of do- doing a double contrast. It's a contrast between Chip versus the Mitch McConnells, the GOP senators that are just like, 
Oh, we can't have a government shut down. But it's also a contrast with that whole MAGA crowd where it's all about a tit for tat on the raw politics. It's just which one's a more of a winning issue. It doesn't mean I believe Biden needs to be impeached a hundred times over, but he's a dead carcass. It's not about him. It's about it's about the broader movement the left has and the success of their policies. They don't need Biden. Ironically, if you impeach him, you get and you would convict him, which you never will, you get Kamala Harris. You impeach her. Well, I guess, yeah, you impeach her, you'll get, technically, you will get McCarthy, you will get a Republican, because he's next in line, but we'll never come to that. My point is, you're not solving anything. Here's the thing. Here's why a government shutdown is really the the best way to go. And when I say government shutdown, it's not, it's not an end to itself. It's not a goal. The goal is to use that as leverage. Because the bottom line is, as we well know, when a government, when, when, when you have a lapse of fiscal year appropriations, all of the critical things operate. The social security checks go out. The military functions, the security agencies function for the, for the better or for, the, for worse. They all function. Okay. Ironically, it's the 17% non-essential that go home. So the beauty of it is it's enough pain and leverage to hold over the Democrats if you message it properly. But it's not like too much of a nuclear bomb that, oh my gosh, mutually assured destruction, we'll, we'll die. No, it's not like that. So it actually is the perfect level of game of chicken you would want to play. That's point number one. Point number two, and and I resent this no end when these guys cry about a government shutdown. What the heck do you think we're living through today? It is the ultimate federal shutdown. When you have, and we're going to have John Young, Michael Young, the Green Beret who's down there in the Darien Gap in Panama, reporting on you have these tattooed up people in the thousands coming to our border, invading military age men. And our government is not just not stopping it. In fact, you only have it because they're inviting them and downright flying them in and directing them to land ports in some cases. If they're between the ports, they just release them. Remember, we have local and... Oh, and here's another thing. In in a federal appropriations lapse, 100%, I want to make this very clear. These are some points that are going to be forgotten. I want to lay them down earlier on in September before we potentially get there. 100% of local and state governments continue to operate. All 50 states, all 3,000 or so counties, all municipalities, all townships, they all function. Okay? That's mainly most of what we need. At its core, why do we need a federal government? Exactly for something like the border. And not only are they not helping, they're downright harming. By the way, I mean, again, the goal is not a government shutdown. Like, the Republicans are like, a government shutdown doesn't help. You idiot, that's not the point. The point is, we're going to stand by our defund provisions. And if the Democrats balk, that is looming over them as a pressure point. But I actually will say on certain things, the government shutdown itself kind of does help. Because if you shut down that part of DHS, 
we will actually be better off. They're going to say, oh my gosh, you're shutting down border security. The the CBP, OFO, and ICE have been marshaled into catch and release. They actually need DHS to more seamlessly and efficiently get them into the country. We would actually be better off without them. It wouldn't be great, but I'm saying it would be better than the status quo. Again, that's not the ultimate goal. But the point is, we have the ultimate government shutdown. We have a government that is spending so much money that we are now spending more monthly on interest payments on the debt itself. Just funding nothing, flushing down the toilet, than the freaking military, which is very expensive. Annualized rate of about a trillion dollars a year. And that it's off to the races. You obviously saw the CPI report today. Despite all of the existing high levels that should naturally come down, and despite rating the strategic petroleum reserves, despite the quickest raise in interest rates ever to this level, it has not cut a dent in it, and the September CPI will likely be even worse. That is a shutdown. People can't afford to live because of the government spending. Taking a generation of children and within a matter of two years, getting up to a quarter of high school students identifying as something that can't procreate, that is a shutdown of civilization. And then doing that now in the military. That is a shutdown. Our military is shut down. Our military is all about Refereeing other countries' prerogatives, social engineering, green energy, transgenderism, anti-Christian bigotry, and anti-white racism. That is a shutdown. They are destroying our energy in favor of dangerous things like EVs and transitioning our electric grid to something that will permanently impoverish us and create scarcity and kill people as dangerous as transitioning someone from a man to a woman, a.k.a. cutting their thing off. That is a government shutdown. And then, of course, as the FBI and DHS monitor, surveil, and then arrest political opponents and criminalize political statements, that is the ultimate shutdown of government. The ultimate shutdown of government is shutting down the social compact, the obligations that a government has to its people, not only shirking them, but then the things they do are antithetical to what they're chartered with doing. These are not, you know, okay, a couple of spending provisions, a couple of government programs that run inefficiently or are wasteful. This is not the 1980s. This is the rise of the Fourth Reich. At some point, you're not even willing to fight through a temporary lapse in funding for the non-essential government. are, Are you kidding me? So that is that point. We have the ultimate systemic and permanent shutdown. So it's worth facing a temporary federal non-essential shutdown to use the one tool we have to attempt to redress this. Number two, government workers 
and government worker benefits as collateral damage should never be the determining factor in avoiding a fight over the future of our civilization. Okay? You can't have that. Our founders envisioned vesting the power of the purse with the people's house, the people closest, the representatives closest to the people, is the last redress for all grievances. That's a paraphrasing from the Federalist Papers. I think Federalist 51. Madison wrote that. If you are basically going to say that we have to accede to crushing the wages of all American workers, the border, the tranny stuff, the green energy, the COVID fascism, all to a, so, so that we can't have a temporary lapse. That's, that's absurd. I'm sorry. But a couple things on that point. When you work in any industry, there are advantages and there's potential disadvantages. And we all have to suffer through that. When you work for the federal government, you have a lot of advantages. You have permanence. You'll never get fired. An economic downturn won't harm you. You have automatic COLA adjustments. It's funny, most, most of my neighbors work for the federal government because we have, um, west of Baltimore, you have the Social Security headquarters. And you could see their salaries, and I've tracked them. And most of them earned roughly around where I did, except now they earn a lot more than when I started looking five, six years ago. You know, I never got COLA adjustments. So now they're 25000 ahead. You have an insane pension. Health benefits the rest of your life. And while you're there, I mean, just up the benefits up the wazoo, the fringe benefits. A lot of them could retire in their 50s. There's a lot of benefits there. Okay? So if the one thing you have to worry about is that every once in a while when we have a fight, Every three to five years on this, you'll have one to three weeks worth of lapsed wages, which 100% it's a political football. No one will ever be caught dead in Congress not voting to pay them back. They always will get paid. Okay, so maybe one or two paychecks worth, you have to transfer money from your savings to your checking. Oh my gosh, Daniel, they cannot paycheck to paycheck. That's bull, and you know it. There are plenty of Americans that are like that. That is not true for most government workers. I'm not saying that they're wealthy, but if you have been working for the government for a while, it's extremely rare that you're of the level of income that you couldn't tra- you, you couldn't work it out with your accounting to have enough money to cover those few weeks. I mean, if you told me, you know, here's the deal. You get all of the aforementioned of a federal workforce. Again, we, we will have a recession. In 2024, every indicator that has never failed since World War II indicates between quarter one and quarter three of next year, there will be a recession and possibly stagflation with it. But if there's no inflation, then that means it will be actually a very severe recession because that's the only thing that's going to break the price inflation. So a lot of people will lose jobs. They don't have to worry about that. So if you tell me you're going to have all that, but here's the deal. You might have a paid vacation for two to three weeks that no one else ever gets their whole life, but it's just the payment will be delayed. 
You'll get paid, and you'll get a vacation. Give me a break. Now, obviously, for those that are forced to work, so it's a little bit more draconian that you get the delayed payment, but it is, they will get paid, albeit delayed, then, you know, okay, it's a little bit worse, but it's still, it, should that be the determining factor that therefore we have to absolve our thing? And, and why, why is it never the Democrats? Notice it's always the Republicans, and, and this is the important thing, another very important point. We're going to list about six, seven important points on a government shutdown. So the reality of the times we live in is if Republicans cannot marshal the courage to stand by their prerogatives at a budget deadline and be willing to go over it to stare down the, the Democrats, they will never, ever be able to do it. Because even when they have all three branches, we saw this under Trump. Well, the Democrats still they still don't really have the Senate, right? Because even if you have 53, 55 in the Senate, you, you, they're never going to get 60. So Democrats could filibuster. So they can't get it out of the Senate. They can't get their bill signed. Notice how Democrats are able to win budget fights even when they just have a filibuster-enabling minority of the Senate, yet when Republicans fully control the House, they can't do it. When they control the House and Senate, they can't do it. When they control all three, they can't do it. It's kind of interesting. It's always a one-way one way street. Another important thing, there's two more important things that I've been saying, and you've heard me say this before, it's, it's worth revisiting. Number one, Government shutdowns take on a whole new life, and there's a whole new talking point that we've never had. We have now lived through a much longer shutdown of the private sector economy and human life, funerals, schools, life cycle events. You mean to tell me that we can't risk a temporary partial federal shutdown that most of us won't even notice or care about in order to redress the very things induced Remember, by that lockdown, the CARES Act, all the inflation comes from the lockdown legislation and economy. We can't redress that because of a, give me a break. That's, we have a much stronger talking point now. Not that, not that I think people ever cared. The polling always showed that, that ultimately people, people never cared. It's a myth. But the second point is, We have never had more existential issues to work on that are popular with the public, and we've never faced such a feckless, weak, inarticulate Democrat president. Part of the, and I'm not necessarily in, you know, saying they lost it, but the thing is, oh, we always lose government shutdowns. You had Obama as president. You had Bill Clinton as Democrat president when, when Republicans had the House and they had the presidency. You know, they, they were good at the bully pulpit, and, and, and understanding was you can't beat the left at the bully pulpit of the presidency. The, you know, dur during, a, during a government shutdown, they have the bully pulpit of the presidency. Now, interestingly enough, somehow that never benefited us when Trump was president, and that's a whole other story, but that's what we're told. You mean to tell me you can't win a fight against a dead carcass like Joe Biden? And again, for issues of malfeasance as they're arresting political opponents, as they're creating debt-driven inflation, destroying our energy, shutting down drilling, 
and then the border invasion and the crime, all this stuff. With with his his negative, you know, 20, negative 30 approval with independent voters. Really? If so, this is important because if they can't do it now, I promise you, everyone is longing for, oh my gosh, Republicans win 2025. Let me walk you through that. Best case, because we live through this. We keep going through these cycles. I wrote an article the first time Republicans took over the House after the Tea Party when Obama was president. We had a lot of existential threats, things to address. And I made the point, I said, you know, because Republicans were starting to say they made all these promises, but then as we got closer, this was in the spring and summer of twenty of 2011. I wrote a column at Red State at the time. And I said, look, if you're going to worry about the collateral damage of government shutdown, you're done. Because you'll all that fear will always hold true because you're never going to wield enough power to pass the things through the front door without some sort of leverage or brinkmanship in between. And indeed, that's what happened when we had the trifecta from 2017 to 2019. So it's the same thing. Look forward to January 2025. Let's say best case scenario. Republican wins the presidency. They expand the majorities in the House and they win the Senate. But but again, winning the Senate will be, right now Republicans have 49. Best case scenario, let's say they, I, I don't have the math exactly, but you got West Virginia, you got Montana. Let's, let's throw in Arizona. Let's just say they get 53 seats. You're far away from 60. So Democrats will just filibuster all of our budget bills. What are you going to do? And if anything, it's actually a little bit harder, ironically, because you look like a fool. Because the lack of 60 seats is kind of nuanced. So, you know, because the main messaging to the American people, the main perception is you control trifecta, all three branches. And you, you can't get it done. You look like a bunch of fools. Whereas here, you kind of, the Democrats have the onus to govern but we could totally block and tackle. Meaning it's a much stronger leverage point if you have only the House as opposed to only the Senate. Because when you have the Senate, you don't fully really have the Senate. So if you can't do it now, you will never do it. Anything you promise to do, you rarely get the chance to pass a bill. You have, like, Usually once a year, you could do budget reconciliation and pass with 51 votes something. But if you are not willing to use brinkmanship points, you're done. And again, it's not even just the budget bill. Republicans are scared of even having all these authorization bills relapse. The Farm Bill, FISA, PAPA. And they'll likely, they're not going to have time to pass all that, but they'll try to catch a, hitch a ride on the CR or omnibus with all those reauthorization bills. That's the other leverage point you have that's not quite as stark but it's something. There's nothing there. So these are points that are consistently being missed. And I just want to revisit the impeachment point just for a minute here. Because I think this is important. Impeachment is all driven by the obsessive GOP focus on the past rather than the present and the future. It's all about looking backwards. Well, you did this to Trump, so we have to do... But it's stupid because it's like, imagine imagine you're at war 
and the left had a flanking maneuver that crushed your side, and you're crushed, you retreat, and then over time, you know, you recover, and you gain a new leverage point to attack. Are you like, I need to attack in the exact same way the, the other side did, even if that attack is going to be suicide or not very beneficial at the expense of another line of attack that is much more auspicious based on where the contours of the battle are today. And, and that's the thing. It's like, well, they impeached him, so we need to impeach him. They had Ukraine corruption. He has his Ukraine corruption pay, pay for play. That's true. But is that really the smartest play? Aside from the fact that you can't affect any outcome because you have no leverage over the Senate, because there's no default, the presidency shuts down like it does with, you know, when, when you have a, a, a budget relapse. I'm not saying none of this is important, but ultimately, what are the issues of today? What are the strategies of today? But you barely hear the top conservative voices talking about it. To a certain extent, I can't blame Kevin McCarthy because this is what the right is asking of him. I mean, to this day, it is stupefying to me how Trump himself has not endorsed Andrew Clyde's amendments to the Commerce Justice Science bill saying if we're, the, the bill we're ultimately going to fund DOJ with has to defund the prosecutions of presidential candidates. We had Andrew on, Freedom Caucus member from Georgia. He's on the Appropriations Committee. We had him on last week. And I think he crafted his amendment in a way that messages very well. Because, look, let's be honest. If you have a fight over the border, the majority of the public, supermajority, agrees with us. Inflation, spending, the public agrees with us. Blocking drilling, the public agrees with us. The tranny stuff, the public agrees with us. I would, I haven't seen polling, but I would argue, at least to an extent, they agree with us on the vaccines. To be clear, you make it over Trump. Most people, I mean, every single poll shows this. Every Democrat, supermajority of independents, and even like a significant minority chunk of Republicans believe Trump is guilty. Whether that's fair or not, that is a reality. That's a pretty unpopular issue to plant your flag on when you have many other ways of fighting. But at least Representative Clyde did this in a way that I think is very defensible because it's not like, oh, it's defending Trump. It's like, look, it's about election interference. He's the top candidate at this point. And it's not just going to be about Trump. You cannot interfere with the election. So it doesn't stop prosecution of Trump after 2024. You could still do it. It doesn't stop investigating him even now. But you can't prosecute Trump or any presidential candidate of any party for the rest of the duration of this election. From now, September 2023, until November 2024. Very reasonable thing to stand behind. I am the only person promoting that. I don't understand. Why isn't Trump and his top noisemakers behind that? Instead, this is from the New York Times... Trump has been privately encouraging GOP lawmakers to impeach Biden. On a sweeping patio overlooking the golf course at his private club at Bedwetter, I mean Bedminster, New Jersey, former Donald, uh, President Trump dined Sunday night with close political al ally Marjorie Taylor Greene. It was a chance for the former president to catch up with the hard right Georgia congresswoman 
And he brought up the issue. So Green brought up the issue of um, impeachment. I did brief him on the strategy that I wanted to see laid out with impeachment, Ms. Green said. And Trump has kept a close watch on House Republicans' momentum towards impeaching Biden. He has talked regularly by phone with members of the Freedom Caucus and other congressional Republicans who push for impeachment. So how in the world does that help Trump? I'm not asking how that helps us because, of course, we don't matter. You know, because populism is all ask what you can do for one man who's very wealthy and doesn't seem to be worried about his livelihood, but we all are all worried about ours. You know, how does that help him? I, I Again, I don't understand. Theoretically, let, let's say Republicans had 67 votes in the Senate. So you could say, even though defund is more direct, but that could be a leverage point to get them to back off because we could throw you out. But not only don't they have those votes, in fact, the, the White House is, is, is saying bring it on because they will come out winning. If you see, typically there's a middle ground. You could say you can't acquit him, acquit him but it's something that goes on. It, it, it's a mark, it's a stain on his legacy if the House votes to impeach him and then the Senate, you know, a significant number a vote, you get, you get, you know, and this is kind of what happened to Trump, where you have every Democrat and, you know, you, you, even a few rhinos joined. That that was, you know, you got, a they could say a majority of the House and Senate voted to get rid of him. I'm not agreeing with it. It was absurd. They're the ones who have the Ukrainian corruption, as we well see every day, with them funneling money there. That's the, that's the sick irony. I understand why my colleagues are very, very upset about that, that hypocrisy. But where we stand today, impeachment will lose 85 to 15. So Biden will wind up improving his numbers if, if you embark on that. But moreover, he's calling all these Freedom Caucus members, distracting them from the defund fight. And also, he's harming their leverage because he's getting the same Freedom Caucus members who, for whatever reason, most of them can't get off of Trump to come to McCarthy and demand impeachment. So the problem is, you can't demand too much. You look like an idiot. So you demand impeachment, so he's like, I'm giving it to you. It weakens your leverage on him on defund. So I, to me, this is indefensible. I think you know exactly what I'm driving at and what this indicates. What it infers. Some, one of two things is true. He either is so aloof to the issues that matter and the way they matter at the time they matter that even when it comes to his own future ability to live a free man for the rest of his life, that you know he's already 77 years old, he totally doesn't get it, or he knows something we don't know. And if it's the latter, that means that everything he and his supporters are putting out about, we need to fight, he's going to be locked up, that's a lie. I mean, Trump told my colleague Glenn Beck Two weeks ago, I'm not worried about being locked up. And, and I, I just, I don't understand that. You literally see, by the way, they're already denying all of his motions. They denied Mark Meadows' motion to take the Georgia district court to federal court, the Georgia case. The judges are forthright. The, like, I, I mean, everyone's, all my colleagues are passing around these statements from the members of the grand jury that voted to indict Trump. 
and how biased they are, how crazy they are. Do you think the members of the petty jury that decide the trial are going to be any different? I, I don't understand. I am actually believing their talking points and taking to it, it to its logical conclusion. Why are they not worried? Why are they not pushing for defund? I'm just trying to illustrate how feckless, what sort of listless vessels they are. They are so acculturated to focusing on the issues that don't matter and the strategy that doesn't matter, the time it doesn't matter, that even on their own God that they focus on with the exclusion of every other important issue to us, they won't even fight in a meaningful way. So I, I just, for the life of me, I don't, ma I, I don't understand it. But folks, that is where we are with a government shutdown. These are the talking points that we should have leaders put, putting out. And by the way, Chip Roy should, at a minimum, be the new chairman of the Freedom Caucus. Notice Chip, when I asked him that, he kind of danced around it. I will tell you between the lines, the reason I think he did is because he knows that he himself is too divisive, even in the Freedom Caucus, that he's like, look, I don't want to harm it, so he might not even run for it. I, I'm, I'm putting words in his mouth. Maybe he will run. I, I can't say he won't. Why is he divisive? Because he doesn't support Meta Trump. You see what I mean? This man takes our potential best assets and jujitsus them into a black hole, even ironically as it relates to the top issue for himself and his biggest supporters. That's what he does. He makes us so damn ineffective against the very thing, things we want to fight. Man, is he frustrating. But folks, folks, this is the sort of Senate Republicans we have. Let me just read this to you. Senator Roger Wicker from Mississippi. On the one hand, we need to give the speaker as much flexibility as we can because he's in such, such a tight situation because of the slim majority and various crosswinds. At the same time, this is a very pivotal moment for our Ukrainian friends, and we don't need to signal that our support is in question. Could you imagine? This is from Mississippi. From our top Red states, we have Senate Republicans that at a time our government is killing us with COVID genocide, is killing us with the border, with crime, with the tranny stuff, with the green energy, with inflationary spending, with racism, with DEI, with destruction of our military. Their number one concern is Ukraine. Is there a sort of genetic mutation for that? I, I can't even relate. To, even the Democrats aren't talking like that. By the way, I mean, if you listen to Mitch McConnell's press conferences, the only criticism he has of Biden is that he didn't send enough money to Ukraine, which is hard to understand. Tom Tillis from North Carolina, another red state. Republicans in the House are right in standing by some of their priorities. So I don't want to create another dimension of negotiations for them. But at the end of the day, we have to fund Ukraine. Never at the end of the day, no matter what, look, I, I support Ukraine, but the border is more important. I support Ukraine... But we got to get a hold of this debt-driven inflation. No. No. It's Ukraine. Joni Ernst from Iowa, another solid red state. The best balance is to provide lethality to the Ukrainian fighters. And then our European partners or other partners can do more on the humanitarian side. 
Like, what the heck? How are we at the point when nearly every red state senator is, I mean, like, they make Kevin McCarthy look like Chip Roy. They're leftists, uber leftists. It happens because for 15 years I have been opposing every single one of those people. But here we are. Lindsey Graham was just reelected in 2020. By the way, Ralph Norman, one of the Freedom Caucus guys from South Carolina, he hinted that he might challenge him in 2026, but that, that's a long time away. Why do we have to wait so long? Because despite everything he did, not 2014, not 2008, even then we, we, we knew we were trying to get rid of him in 2008 when he was up for re-election his first time, at least as a senator. He was in the House in the 90s, been around forever. But in 2020, Trump endorsed him. I mean, I mean what, do you, what do you want me to say? What do you want me to say? This is what listless vessels our side has been. Had they listened to me for the last 15 years, and, and often there was this whole divisive argument about swing state Senate races and, you know, if you're too conservative, that it might blow it. Now, first of all, it has nothing to do with how conservative you are. It's the quality of the candidate. If you have a good rhino candidate, he could win. If you have a good conservative candidate, he could win. If you have a lousy one, that it's more the quality of the candidate and the campaign that's run. But I said, look, I'll cede the point to you. We'll just focus on the super red states. Just let us have those. No. Roger Wicker, I endorsed. Um, we, we, we could have had uh, Chris McDaniel. Trump endorsed him. Roger Wicker, that is. Every one of these people. I was on a conference call today with other conservative leaders. And we were talking a little bit about the pipeline battle. And thankfully, one other person brought up my point that conservative media was awfully muted on that fight relative to the magnitude of, you know, stealing a Chinese-backed, BlackRock-backed, green energy company, making carbon a problem, sucking out carbon into a pipeline and stealing land in a red state for, like, that's insane. Why is it that this was done despite conservative media, not with them? And he brought out that, look, people don't want to go after Christy Noem. It's not just Trump. And this is my thing. We have an entire movement geared towards influencing the side over which they have no influence and cheering on rather than pressuring the wayward side they do have influence over. The left doesn't do that. They have a movement, not an industry, a movement. So they, you know, if, if there's a Democrat off message on a single issue, a single place, they zap them. They're done. That's why they're rarely off message or almost never because they have a movement holding them in place. We don't have a movement. We have an industry. An industry doesn't want to pressure. An industry wants access. So you don't want to ruin those relationships. So you'll ruin the relationships, so to speak, that you don't have, aka with Democrats, the media. This is why, you know, the Republican Party and the conservative movement nationally and in the states won't pressure people like Joni Ernst and Roger Wicker and James Langford in Oklahoma. Every one of them. 
again, it's not just like they're generally good, but they kind of, they're liberal on one or two issues. They are horrible, even subversive, siding with the left, cheering on Schumer to beat the House Republicans in a budget fight. You know, they just voted for cloture to move with the first Democrat budget bills in the Senate. As the House struggles with them, there were only like 11 no votes against, against cloture on that. This is the point. I'm giving you the reason why we are where we are, but also a vision that it doesn't have to be this way. I want you to play over from the beginning of the show that three and a half minute clip from Chip Roy. Inject it into your veins. As it says in Isaiah, place it. Place it on the tablet of your heart. And fight for it. Fight for it where it matters, when it matters, how it matters, at the time it matters. The time is now. The method is the budget fight. The who and the where are Republican members from red states. Those are your marching orders. Let me know if you have questions, comments, concerns, disagreements. Daniel Horowitz at startmail.com is the email. At RM Conservatives on Twitter. Till tomorrow, God bless you all. And thank you for listening.